Well, I was, uh, I was spanning my brain for an opening illustration for this sermon. And I was having trouble. And so I just thought to myself, you know what? I have had this old clip that I've been saving for a day when I had no opening illustration. And here it is. Honk if you love Jesus. Text while driving if you want to meet him. <laughs> I, I was just keeping that in the cooker, you know, for a while. For a rainy day, and it just, you know, it just felt like today. Now that has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just thought you'd get a good laugh out of it. How many of you text while driving? All right, good. Oh, we, I, see, I see one or two hands. Come on now, folks. I thought that was pretty good. You know, Pastor uh, Floyd Ingram, I guess it is, uh, decided to put that up on his marquee. You know, we, we just kind of gave up on our marquee. We just kind of leave it as is. We're not that creative. But nevertheless, you know, really what we're talking about today is we're continuing on in our series in Romans. The series is entitled God's Plan for Israel. And we are at part five of that series. Part five is entitled Righteousness and Salvation Are Near. Righteousness and Salvation Are Near. Now, we've come through a lot in Romans. And I want to take us through a real brief recap to bring us all up to speed that we might know where we are in this grand book. Grand letter, I should say, to the Christians at Rome. Questions abounded among the people to whom Paul wrote, uh, particularly among the Jewish people in his uh, audience. They would, uh, and among Gentiles alike, there was, there was, there was widespread confusion about doctrine and, and issues related to the church and, and how God was working in the world. And among the many questions were, if the God of the Bible is the one true God, why has His own people been rejected by Him? Why, if, if the one true God of the Bible is God, why has He rejected His own chosen people, Israel? And that brought us to part one in our series. God's promises remain for the Israel within Israel. Read verses 1 to 13 of Romans 9, and you will see that clearly a remnant of Israel will go on to attain all the promises, all the promises that God has given to Israel. Now, there were some who objected to Paul and they say, well, well, wait a minute. How how come God only shows mercy to a few people? Why doesn't he simply show mercy to all? And to that, Paul responded in part two of our message. Mercy and hardening are God's prerogatives, Paul says in verses 14 to 21 of chapter nine. He says in verse 18 that God has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And as difficult as that is for some of us to swallow, we must recognize that Paul teaches and the Bible speaks to the fact that God is sovereign over his creation. He's the potter. We're the clay. Now, thankfully, we've learned that when God does choose to harden or to blind someone, the Bible is clear that that hardening is not an act of eternal condemnation but is related to temporary judgment carried out in this life. In fact, the Bible speaks of the fact that hardening is reversible. Look at Ephesians 2.3 and you'll find that we were once children of wrath, but now have obtained mercy. And this reminds us in part three of our message that never without mercy, God's patient and purposeful wrath. His wrath is never without mercy. His hardening, His blindness is never without mercy. It's always with a view to bring about glory to Himself and open up wider the gates of salvation to others. Now, in the case of Israel, God has temporarily blinded them to the Gospel. That's what the Romans 9 teaches. But the reason He's done so is so that the Gospel could abound to the Gentiles, to, to mainly you and I here today. Paul contends that in this present age, God is concerned with the calling of the Gentiles and the refining of Israel. And that was part four last week in our message. The calling of the Gentiles and the refining of Israel. And Paul tells us, as Jesus tells us before him, as Zacharias says before him, and so on and so forth, that in the case of uh, that, that the tribulation period will be the final moment of refining for Israel. And then God will fulfill His promise. 
and set apart a remnant of Israel for deliverance and for salvation. And that brings us to our fifth part in our series in God's plan for Israel. Part five, righteousness and salvation are near. Righteousness and salvation are near. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. And let's stand together as I read Romans 9, 30 through chapter 10, verse 10. Romans 9, verse 30 through 10, 10. Part 5. Paul writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. But brothers, Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ, He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, He says, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You may be seated. Tough text. As have they all been in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Let's get to it. Verse 30 again. What shall we say then, Paul writes, that Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, have not attained it? They've not attained to the law of righteousness? And why? Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, but by the works of the law. Gentiles, okay? Gentiles, non-Jews. We who uh, were once children of wrath, we who did not pursue righteousness. Take note of that in verse 30. We who did not pursue righteousness have attained, realized righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Here again in verse 30, we learn that those once blinded, those once hardened, can become objects of God's mercy. And notice one phrase carefully. Paul writes, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. How often, how often do you or I uh, fall into maybe a trap at times of giving unbelievers the impression that they need to, before they come to Christ, before they come to faith, that prior to conversion, they need to really clean up their life. They need to uh, get rid of every sin. They need to clean house, sweep up, uh, make sure that their, their life is totally in order, totally righteous and and seeking after the Lord before they can become a Christian. Have you ever given someone that impression? Have you ever heard someone else give another person that impression of conversion? You see, some Christians like to restrict salvation to those who can prove that they've utterly forsaken their sinful past, leaving no rock unturned, leaving no sin unrepented of. Yet here... We see an entire people group described as men and women who did not pursue righteousness and yet attained the righteousness of faith. 
Salvation's by grace. Salvation's by grace, Paul says. It's by grace through faith in Christ. Were salvation contingent on us cleaning house ahead of time, we would never attain it. Salvation's by grace. Even those who don't pursue righteousness can become saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that, that grace, that unbelievable grace that is, that is given to those, even to those who don't pursue righteousness, is ultimately and finally what gives us the proper motivation to be holy in God's sight. You see, we can try to be holy out of fear. We can try to be righteous out of fear and think, I've got to get my house in order before I can enter heaven. But that's motivation by fear. That's holiness motivated by fear. Whereas what Paul's suggesting, and what, this, what the Bible teaches, and what this church stands firmly on, is that it is the grace of God that motivates obedience. It is when a person realizes that even, if, even though they haven't even pursued righteousness, God has been merciful to them. That is what spurs on righteousness greater than fear ever could. How are you presenting Christ to others? Are you asking them to clean house utterly and finally and totally before they can be converted? Or are you simply presenting the message of grace that by faith in Christ, they can be eternally saved? Now sadly, so many missed this point. Israel certainly missed it. Notice verse 31. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained it. They've not attained to the law of righteousness. And why? Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, but by the works of the law. I was, uh, I was, we were camping this summer with some friends, and uh, we were on the beach. And I was a little bit concerned about my daughter. Uh, Mallory was, uh, she was running to the waves, you know, and I was picking her back and taking her back up the beach and she'd run back into the waves and I'd have to take her back and she wanted so desperately to play in the water. And so me and some of my friends, we had an idea, we, we would uh, dig a hole, uh, you know, dig in the sand, you know, deep enough, about, you know, 20 yards back or so, so that we could have a nice little hole and then we'd take buckets of water and fill it and fill that, that, that sand uh, hole with water so that the little kids could play in it. Well, if I got, I got a little picture there. Well, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm trying, trying to give you an illustration of something that's bluntly obvious. Uh, but when I, uh, the, the problem was, every time I would pour water into this hole, little by little, the water would slowly retreat back underneath the sand. It would drain slowly, but it would start fading and receding back into the sand and back ultimately into the ocean. When I thought I had finally poured enough water, it wasn't, you know, an hour later that I would come back and have to refill that pool again and again and again. And I had to keep refilling and keep refilling because my foundation was sand. Now, some people think that they can pour in, friends. They, they think that they can pour in enough righteousness to earn them a spot in heaven. So they start doing good works. They start acting kindly to all. They fill their lives with what they believe is sufficient, a sufficient amount of righteousness to earn them God's favor. But the problem is, like my problem on the ocean, their foundation is sand. In time, all their good deeds that they've poured into their life will start to fade. And if they don't keep perpetually refilling their life of righteousness, their holiness will start to fade. Why? Because their foundation is sand. You cannot do enough good deeds to enter the kingdom of God. You cannot do enough to earn salvation. You cannot do enough after you've received salvation. You can't do enough before you've received salvation. You can't do enough. If you're focused on works, as Israel was, it's like pouring a bucket of water into a sand hole that might look filled for a time, but will ultimately recede and drain away. Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith. They had the wrong foundation, but by the works of the law. 
Verse 32, he goes on, For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Jesus and the simple truth of salvation by faith in Him had become a stumbling block for Israel. In fact, the word stumble there, or stumbling, is probably a little bit more uh, uh, exacting. It's more demanding. It's more the idea of collision. They've collided with one another. The Jews and their view of works righteousness and Jesus and His message of salvation by faith have collided. And there's been, there's been tension ever since. That collision resulted in the death of our Savior. That collision has resulted in confusion in the church in Rome over the Jews who were still concerned about works righteousness. These two theologies, they were at odds with one another. But Paul is very clear. The one who believes on Christ will not be put to shame. He will not be ashamed. Though the theology at the time was largely in the Jewish camp, the majority were in the Jewish camp saying, no, no, you've got to have works, you've got to have works. So that those in the minority, those who were arguing for salvation by faith, they were a little bit ashamed perhaps, being in the minority, being among the few who understood and accepted that doctrine. But Paul writes firmly, you won't be put to shame if you buy that. In fact, you'll be right in line with God's truth. Hope was not yet lost for the Jewish brethren of Paul. And Paul reminds us that whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. And that includes the Jews. Notice verse 1. He writes this in chapter 10, verse 1. Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear, excuse me, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, I think um, Elias and I have discussed this before, and, and I know others of you have as well. I think up until this point in Romans, uh, the casual reader of Romans, the casual reader, the person who's um, a, a bit uninformed, a bit not comprehending where Paul's coming from, and particularly Paul's ethnicity, which was Jewish, um, the uninformed reader would probably come to this point in Romans and begin to think, my goodness, Paul awfully sounds... Um, anti-Semitic. Remember the things that Paul has said so far. He has said that Israel is presently a vessel of wrath. He says that in Romans 9. He alludes to it, I should say. I, I think it's very, very clear who he's alluding to. He says Israel is presently a vessel of wrath. He says that later on in Romans, he says that God calls them a disobedient and a contrary people. He says that God has temporarily hardened, hardened Israel. He's blinded them from the truth. And he says that Israel has, has stumbled or collided with the message of Jesus Christ and of salvation by faith in Him. And so some might look at Romans and begin to think, my goodness, is Paul anti-Semitic? He, he sure seems to be very aggressive toward the Jews and very uh, somewhat condemning. But remember... To the extent that Paul's being aggressive with Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's being aggressive with himself because he himself was a member of Israel. He himself was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, he's going to say later on in Romans. And here in Romans 10, 1, if there was ever a hint of Paul being too aggressive, too forceful with the Jews, his own brethren, here is where he squashes that rumor. And he says in verse 1 again, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, he says. Paul says, I earnestly desire and pray for their salvation. He looks for the best in them, he says, noting that they, they have a very real, though misplaced, but a very real zeal for God. They have a passion for God, Paul recognizes. He is one of them. And he desperately wants to see them turn to God in faith. This is how, friends, we, we are to respond to, to others who are unbelievers in our life. We're to 
Though, though at times we may get uh, aggressive in our evangelistic efforts, though at times we may, we may push the envelope a bit, let us remember that we are to be earnestly desiring and praying for their salvation. That we are to be earnestly uh, uh, taking note of the things in their life that we can say, my goodness, you know, though, though this is misplaced, I see, I see this in you. And I see how the Lord could use this ultimately for His purpose. Paul looks at non-Christians, he looks at Jews who have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and he honors their zeal, their passion. So also, as you're witnessing to someone and, and trying to bring them along in the faith, um, you, you can go the route of, of hammering them for their lifestyle and hammering them for their sin and, and, and focusing on the negative. Or you can also turn things around and, and, and identify ways in which God has gifted them as God has gifted all of mankind, both Christian and non. Because men and women are created in His image. And the Jews, they had zeal, they had passion, and Paul honored that. He says, I see your passion. Now I just want to channel it. I see your zeal. Now I just want to show you how best to use that zeal. How it can be used for God's glory in the church. Your skills, uh, friends, uh, Christians, and, and, and uh, even those of you who may not be a believer in Christ today, your skills, all of them can be used for God. All of them can be channeled for the Lord's purposes. And I encourage you, I implore you to use your gifts, use your skills for the Lord, for His glory, for His church. Find ways to, you know, uh, oftentimes the tendency is to, is to wait for the pastor or the elders to, to, to delegate a responsibility to you to go out and do X, Y, and Z. No, no, you, you rise up. You know the skills, you know the gifts that you have. Use that for the Lord's glory, for His purposes. Tell us, tell me, how you can use your own gifts for God's glory. I want to help you in that. This church wants to get behind you in that. Now, when Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, I want to ask the question, and it might sound obvious, but I want to ask it anyway, what does he mean by saved? We might read these words and suppose that Paul is simply wishing that his fellow Israelites would become eternally saved or justified. But I suggest that Paul means much more than simply, I hope Israel becomes justified. In fact, that would really fly in the face of so much of what Paul has just said about his countrymen. We know from previous messages in Romans and throughout the New Testament that the Greek word sozo or soteria in, in Greek, save or salvation, that these words mean so much more than what we often import from our English mindset. The basic concept of salvation or save in Greek is deliverance. Deliverance. And it always begs the question, when you see the term sozo or soteria, save or salvation, you need to ask the question every time, deliverance from what? Deliverance from what? And so here Paul writes, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be delivered. And we ask, delivered from what, Paul? Of course, Paul has already told us what kind of salvation deliverance he is hoping for Israel. He told us in Romans 9, verses 27 to 29. This is where he writes, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. What does that mean? For he will finish the work, and I'm adding here the work of tribulation. This is with a view to the end times. He will finish the work, God will, and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we, have, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. That is, we would have perished in judgment. Paul has just told us what he hopes for the deliverance of Israel. And he has relegated that hope. He has zeroed in on that hope 
toward the end of days when Israel experiences unbelievable persecution, persecution unlike any they've experienced before, and Paul is pleading with the Lord and asking the Lord to save them, to preserve them, to deliver them from that harsh time frame. On your outline, when Paul says he hopes that Israel will be saved, he is speaking not just of the Jews becoming justified by faith in Jesus, but he is speaking also of Israel's preservation from tribulation, that Israel might be delivered from the coming wrath of God. And friends, this is a more holistic understanding of what Paul is seeking the Lord for. He has not written all that he has in chapter 9 to say at the onset of chapter 10, I hope they get into heaven. It is so much past that. It it includes justification, but it goes so much further. It reaches so further down the road of salvation deliverance. Paul is asking God to preserve, and he's expecting God, to preserve the remnant of Israel through the difficulty that lies ahead in the tribulation period. Keep this point in mind. Keep this view of salvation in mind as we move forward in Romans. It may seem trivial right at this moment, what I'm saying. It may seem trite. You may think, why why do you bother bringing this up? But later on, just a few verses later, we're going to see the tremendous importance of understanding salvation in this way. Paul continues to speak to Israel in verse 3. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Israel, not understanding that God's righteousness is simply attained by faith, Israel has tried to, to fill up, to pour in their own righteousness. And all the while, their good deeds are draining into the sand. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They have not recognized that Jesus Christ is the end of the law. And what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the end, the telos of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes? It means two things. Number one, it means this, that Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus says this very thing in Matthew chapter 5. He writes... He speaks, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. The telos, the end. He has fulfilled the law. But it also means, number 2.2, that Jesus is the goal of the law. He's the end of it. He's, He's the reason for it. He is the reason for the Mosaic Law, as Paul writes in Galatians 3. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor. Jesus is the goal. He's the end. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Righteousness. That when God looks at me, He sees Christ's righteousness that I have, that, that, that I have acquired by faith in Christ. And God looks at my righteousness, which is Christ's righteousness, and allows me to enter into His kingdom. Christ is the fulfillment of righteousness. What the Jews have been searching for. What the Gentiles didn't even pursue and yet have attained. Christ has fulfilled it. He was the goal of it. He's the one who gives it to you. Make no mistake, our entrance into God's kingdom is based on righteousness. But not yours. Christ's. And that's why we must believe in Him to receive that righteousness. Now sadly, Israel, Paul writes, but also so many of us in Christendom today, sadly, we wrongly believe that our own righteousness is efficacious for salvation. Paul rails against this in in verse 5. Notice what he says, verse 5 and following. He writes, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. 
The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. And we all say, huh? What's he talking about? I don't know. Let's go home. No, I'm just kidding. These verses are difficult, no doubt. On the onset, they're difficult. We look at them and we think, what is Paul even talking about here? But as we walk through them, we, our eyes just become enlightened to what Paul is referring to here. So hang with me. Paul has been repeating over and over and over and over again that Israel has tried, tried to attain salvation by their own righteousness. Of course, Paul and Jesus before him believe this to be a futile pursuit. Why? Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. Now Paul here is quoting Leviticus 18.5 in the Mosaic Law in which Moses recognizes and God recognizes that life, what kind of life? We'll find out. Life is achieved or realized when we do the law. If we follow the law, we will achieve life. But of course, as we walk through this life, we don't know if we're going to follow the law forever. So really, do I know if I have life here? No, I'm not at the end of my life. Okay. Do I know if I have life here? Okay, I've followed the law to an extent, but I've still got a ways to go. Have I followed the law enough to get life now? We keep asking that question until we get to the end of our days. It's a comment by Moses in Leviticus 18.5, which, while intended to show Israel the standard of righteousness, in reality left them with a view that, that, that they felt, how can I know that I have it? How can I know that I have it? Jesus speaks to this issue in Luke chapter 10, a fascinating exchange between him and a lawyer. Notice what he says. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? And so he answered and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. With all, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the lawyer, You have answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. Some parallels there, aren't there? Man who does these things shall live by them. Jesus says, you're right. You gave me the law, now do that and you'll live. Let me ask you something. Do you think that was comforting to the lawyer? Do you think that was comforting to those that heard it in the crowd? That, that they needed to follow the law to the letter in order to attain life? You see, when Moses wrote this um, in Leviticus 18.5, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek. When Jesus said what He said in Luke 10, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek. And when Paul brings up this point in Romans 10, verse 5, it is again a bit tongue-in-cheek. Is it theoretically possible for a person to tow the line of the law to the end of their days and achieve life? In theory, yes. In practice, impossible. In practice, impossible. Therefore, Paul says earlier in Romans, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All that we gain... All the lawyer gains by following the law to the letter and trying to attain life in this way, to inherit eternal life in that way, all that he gains is doubt that he has accomplished it. All that he gains is walking through day by day by day, worrying and fearful that at any given moment he might transgress the law and might be eternally condemned thereby. There is no assurance. There is no hope. There is no peace when we walk down the road of works righteousness. And so Paul writes, 
For Moses wrote about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But of course, that's impossible, Paul implies. That's impossible. Nevertheless, the Jews trudged forward, vainly believing that their own righteousness would bring them God's favor. And so also many Christians trudge forward along that same path. But Paul continues, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. There's a different kind of righteousness now, not a works righteousness, but a righteousness by faith. And that message, as opposed to the other message, the righteousness of faith message says this. Well, first, Paul's actually going to say what it doesn't say. The righteousness of faith message does not say. Verse six, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Now, what's this all about? Verse 6, 7, and 8 is a conglomeration of scriptures from Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. I want to bring up the selection in Deuteronomy 9 to demonstrate where Paul is headed. Notice the phrase, do not say in your heart, in verse 6 of Romans 10. Do not say in your heart. Paul picks this phrase out, I believe, and the vast majority of scholars believe. Paul picks this phrase out from Deuteronomy 9, in which a unique situation is happening in Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Paul, excuse me, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel about the reason that they are entering the promised land. And this is what he says. Do not think in your heart, or do not say in your heart in the Greek Septuagint. Same, same translation that Paul uses. Do not say or think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you and that He may fulfill the word which the Lord swore, which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. You see, the context in Deuteronomy 9, that phrase, do not think this in your heart, that Paul picks up and carries over to Romans 10 to demonstrate his point, which follows in perfectly with the context of Romans 10, is do not assume that God's favor upon you is in any way contingent upon your righteousness. Do not suppose, Moses writes, speaking on behalf of the Lord in Deuteronomy 9, do not suppose that we are walking into the promised land because you've been good, or because you've been upright, or because you've been so holy and so amazing and so fantastic. God's favor... God's blessing, God's mercy and grace upon you has nothing to do with your righteousness prior to coming to know Him. Nothing to do with it. And Paul imports that idea. He takes that idea from Deuteronomy 9 and he sticks it straight into Romans 10. And this is where he says, the righteousness of faith, this is what it doesn't say. Those who understand the message of Christ of salvation by grace through faith, they are not those who say, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, what does that mean? Well, for starters, we who have received God's righteousness by faith realize that God's favor upon us is not a result of our righteousness. Just as God told Israel that the blessing of the promised land was not given to them on account of their good works, but ultimately on account of God's promise to them. Still, many in Moses' day believed that their own goodness resulted in God's favor. And many in Paul's day believed that their own holiness could result in God's favor as well. It goes without saying that the majority of first century Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And what were they doing? They were still looking for the Christ. Those who, the majority of the Jews, 
who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they had, they had said no to Jesus as Christ, as Messiah, and therefore they were still looking for the Christ. They were looking for the Messiah. They were wondering, when is He going to come? Did you know that many of those same Jews thought, among the theology of their day, that their righteousness, that their holiness would spur on the advent of the Messiah? St. Hodges writes, In Paul's day, the view of many was that the coming of the Messiah would be hastened by Jewish obedience to the law. Our knowledge of this, this, this fine point of history, this is a history lesson of what they believed, how they thought, how the Jews who did not accept Jesus as Messiah, how they thought about the Messiah. A good portion of them, a good majority of them thought if they were righteous enough, if they were holy enough, if they were good enough, that would hasten, that would spur on the coming of the Messiah. And so Paul writes, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down from above? In other words, Paul says, Don't suppose that your holiness will be strong enough, will be a strong enough influence to bring down God's Messiah. Don't suppose, Israel, that your works righteousness, that your holiness, that you're towing the line will hasten the day of Messiah, Paul writes. Don't say that in your heart. You're not going to incur God's favor by righteousness, by holiness. You're not going to incur God's favor by your own works righteousness. You're not going to hasten the day of the coming of the Messiah. And oh, I know, Paul says, he implies, I know that you mock those who believe Jesus is the Messiah. I know you mock those who claim that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah of Israel because He died. And that doesn't sit well with you. And so he continues on in verse 7. Or who will descend into the abyss, they mock, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul's warning the Jews. He's warning the Israelites. He's saying, look, do not suppose that your works righteousness will bring down the Messiah. Neither suppose that your sarcastic and mocking tone toward the Christians, your holier-than-thou attitude toward the Christians who in your mind worship a dead Christ, don't suppose that that is going to gain you God's favor either. Because that Christ whom you think is dead, He is actually risen from the dead. He is actually very much alive. And He's coming one day to judge the living and the dead. As difficult as, as this is, Romans 10, verse 6 and 7, and we're going to see in verse 8, is a warning to the Jews to not rely on their own righteousness to bring down a Messiah, or to not be, have a holier-than-thou attitude to mock the Messiah of the Christians. He's saying God will not show favor to you for this attitude. God will not show favor to you for this sentiment. His message to Israel is clear. Your self-righteousness, and this is a message not just to Israel, but to all of us. Paul writes, Paul implies, your self-righteousness is going to get you nowhere. It will not bring God's favor it will not hasten the coming of Messiah. In fact, you've missed the Messiah, Paul warns. The very one you sarcastically mock as dead is very much alive. And though you do not even realize it, Paul's going to say in verse 8 that the opportunity, the chance of your salvation is nearer now than it ever was before. Verse 8. But what does it say? What does what say? But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Verse 6. The Christian message, the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, the righteousness of faith message speaks this way. Verse 8. 
What does it say? The Word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Paul comes to the end here and he says, look, the righteousness of faith, the only righteousness that mankind can ever hope for, it is near you. It is near you, Israel. It is near you, Coast Bible Church. It is right there. In the Deuteronomy 30 passage, if we were to turn there, we would find that that the Jews were saying, oh, this, 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 com- this commandment of God, it's, it's too far off. It's too distant. It's too mysterious to comprehend. And here Paul picks up that language and he says, no, it's right near. It's at the gate. All you have to do is open the door and you'll see it. It is near us. The word of faith. The righteousness of faith. It is not a distinct or a mysterious ideology. It is not confusing. It is not difficult to comprehend. God's righteousness, God's life, are near you. Available to you. And the word of faith that Paul preaches, the righteousness of God, this glorious salvation is as near to us as is our mouth and as is our heart. And what is that word of salvation? Verses 9 and 10. That if you confess... With your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now I want to pause there. And uh, in just a moment, the, uh, the ushers, as they have uh, time, are going to uh, pass out a second sheet. So I'll ask that they begin to do that right now. We're not going to interpret verses 9 and 10 today. I want to leave us here meditating on this word of faith, this word of salvation, this righteousness of faith that Paul speaks of. I know many of you have memorized these verses. Go ahead and pass those out. I know many of you have memorized Romans 10, 9, and 10. And I'm quite sure that many of us think that we know precisely what these verses mean. But I think the general confidence of Christians in the meaning of these verses is a bit misplaced. I think the manner in which most interpret them actually fly in the face of the context of Romans 9 and 10. And as we'll see in chapter 11. And so I want you to go home now reading and meditating on these verses again for the first time. I have... uh, We're going to take two weeks actually. I I have a topical message next week. And then following that, in two weeks, we'll come back together And that will give us two weeks of of meditation and consideration of these two verses. Two of the more critical verses in the New Testament. And I prepared some questions. I wanted to go over these questions with you. Um, These questions are not easy. But homework isn't meant to be easy. At least not when I was a kid. So I want to go through these real quick. And then we'll close with a word of prayer. I want to challenge you. Use these in your devotion. Try to get through these. Try to think, okay, wait a minute. Let me not take these verses and pull them out of their context. Let me keep these verses in their context and find out what Paul means by them. I think we'll find some fruit as we do that. Questions for Romans 10, 9, and 10. Number one, who is Paul primarily addressing? And what has Paul been teaching toward them, this group, up until this point? Number two, what does Paul mean by confess? Don't assume you know what that word means. Look it up. Consider it. Number three, what are we saying about Jesus if we confess the Lord Jesus? Number four, is this confession public or private? Number five, are confession and calling on the name of the Lord distinct or synonymous? And if it's synonymous, what does Paul mean by calling on the name of the Lord? Number six, what are we saying about Jesus if we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Number seven, are confession and belief distinct or synonymous? Now, there's an important one. Start that one. Number eight, what does Paul mean by saved? Does he mean justified? Does he mean sanctified? 
Does he mean delivered? Does he mean glorified or something else? Let's suppose, letter A, that Paul defines saved as justified. Can you find other scriptural support for confession being a condition of justification? B, did Paul mention confession as a condition of justification in his teaching on justification earlier in Romans? Does the Gospel of John, a book written that we might have eternal life, does it mention confession as a condition of justification? Read John 12, 42 and 43. What effect does this passage have on Romans 10, 9 and 10? You're going to love that verse. I'll give you fits. Don't look now. Come on. Wait. Number 10, what does Paul mean by righteousness? Number 11, is the order of verse 10 significant? Is it significant in Romans 10, 14? What bearing does Romans 10, 14 have on question 7 above? Is there a distinction between receiving righteousness and receiving salvation? Star that one too. That's important. And in one or two sentences, summarize what you believe is the purpose of Romans 10, 9 and 10. I, I, I should say, you know, restate it in your own words. What do you find Jesus, Paul to be saying in these verses? Um, I, you know, I leave you, I, I leave you with you know, this, this, uh, this uh, studious uh, ending uh, to go home and to ch- take on these 13 or so questions plus quite a few more. Um, don't, don't pass this by. I'll tell you this will be one of, the, one of the more fruitful Bible studies you've ever done. And one of the more difficult ones, but also one of the more fruitful ones. Do it with your spouse. Do it with your, uh, your children if they're up for it. Um, dig in. Two weeks. We'll come back again. Consider what Romans 9, 10, 9, and 10 mean. And in the meantime, though, friends, as we leave today, remember, Paul has said so much today. He has, uh, he has chastised us for walking down the road of works righteousness, but He has reminded us, reminded us that salvation is near. Salvation is near. It is right here. It is right at the gate. And it doesn't come by by works. It doesn't come by holiness. It comes by faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is our eternal Savior. Amen?